Have you felt the pressure to have a perfect Christmas yet? Have you felt any of that? That uh, maybe your shopping's not done. Um, maybe you didn't even think about it yet. Um, and now I just made you nervous. And so, uh, uh, but there's that pressure that some of us feel some this time of year to uh, to be something, to have something that that is uh, postcard esque um, in a good way. And so maybe you've wrestled with that. Maybe you uh, come today and you're a little stressed out of the preparations and the busyness of the season. And um, what we want to look at here. Today Today, as we continue our series on digging Christmas, is just a hopefully a little bit of a, a peace and calmness and perspective on on that attitude. Um, the Bible begins the story of Christmas begins in Luke chapter two, verses one and two, and following with these words. It says, "In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered." This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town, and Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, um, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn and wrapped firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And so you have heard that story. But really, if you were to have appeared in Bethlehem that night, you would have not been struck by the extraordinariness of the events. You would have thought it was just another day, just another event in the life of Israel. And in fact, if you were to, uh, it was an interesting thing for me this week just to read several different things and, and do some studying on what the life, the world was like in the lifetime of Jesus. You would have happened into Palestine and where a population of five or 600,000 people would have dwelled in that region. 55,000 of them would have lived in Jerusalem and the rest of them had spread out in various cities, some of them Jewish, some of them Greek, some of them Roman, would have been various different cities that you would have encountered all over that region where those 600,000 people would have been spread. If you would have walked through the streets of Bethlehem that day, you would have found kids doing what kids normally do. Archaeologists have found all kinds of toys and games that they would have played just like kids today do. They enjoyed games that were similar to hopscotch and jacks. Um, Maybe they were playing with their toys, uh, things like whistles, rattles, toy animals on wheels, hoops and spinning tops that have been found over time. Thankfully, none of them required batteries, and so they were a little quieter than the toys that you and I have to put up with today. Older children and adults found time to enjoy play too, mostly with board games. They have found a game that was very similar to checkers that was very popular in the days of Jesus. And so you would have walked through town, seen kids playing with toys, adults. Maybe if they were after work, they were enjoying playing a game together where they would spend the last several hours of their day just visiting in in community with each other. If you would have met merchants on the street, they would have been very plainly dressed for the most part. But depending on the merchant that they were, they would have had something on their body that would have indicated what kind of merchant they were. Uh, Carpenters would put wood chips behind their ears to identify them as carpenters, um, uh, tailors would stick needles in their tunics so that it, people would recognize them as, as tailors. Dyers wore colored rags on them to identify them as, as people who would dye clothing for you. And on and on it would go. And, and so as you walk through the streets, it would just be a normal day in, in Israel, a normal day in Palestine, a normal day in Bethlehem, and many of the things we could identify. But it was, it was just a normal day 
that seems so ordinary for another Israelite baby to be born into another Israelite family and just add one more to the population total. It was just an ordinary couple, just an ordinary birth in an ordinary way in so many ways, just to the casual observer. And yet, when you read those stories through biblical lenses, what you find is that it's not just an ordinary story. That is not just an ordinary birth. This is not just an ordinary family. That God was doing something in this scene that was extraordinary. And so I want to show you a video that maybe captures, I think in a little, in a little more profound way than I could say it, um, just some of the magnitude of what seemed to be so ordinary, but in reality was so extraordinary. So. that silent night when the stars turned their gaze to marvel at the earth when the heavens gathered breathless round the lowly stable when a young mother wept tears of worship falling on the baby in her arms and the song of the earth arose in Bethlehem Soft is the tender beating of his heart, and always calm, always bright. Yet could this be the same God of Abraham, the conqueror of Israel, this baby, this fragile life? Is this child the one who burned his name in rapture across the gasping skies? whose voice spoke the oceans into crashing rhythms, who crafted the mountains into guardians of the firmament, whose hand ignited the thirst of the deserts and the warring surge of the elemental hosts, who breathed life from dust, broke the oppressor's rule, scattered the chains of his people like sand, and led them through the wilderness with a pillar of flame. Is this child the one whose presence billowed thunderous on Sinai's peak? Who surrounded Job with a roaring wind? Stood defiant in the raging furnace? Wrote judgment against tyrants and blazed on the lips of the prophets? Scorching history's pages with the fury of his might? Could this be the same God who chose to come as the vulnerable king? setting his throne on straw and manger, drawing forth the tears of shepherds, receiving the gifts of wandering travelers, his fame unknown in this world. He is Jesus, the one who thunders through the heavens, yet whispers to our hearts who reigns victorious, yet bows to serve the broken. He is God in the fury, God in the silence. He holds this mystery balanced in his hands, holds our questions till they lose their need, until all we see is him.
And so what appeared to be quite an ordinary night, upon further reflection, upon deeper exploration, proves itself to be a much more extraordinary night. And so you begin to read the Gospel of Luke and you begin to find he and the other Gospel writers tell you this story of not just a baby being born, but of a God-man being born. We are amazed at the claim that the God that has created, the God who has been at work through the pages of, of history, now appears to us fully human. And the things that begin to happen and the things that he does out of his divinity, the miracles he performs, the things he says, the things he does amaze people. But just as amazing is his humanity. That God, who is so great, so full of glory, so deserving of all worship and honor and praise, humbles himself to the lowest level not to be born in the palace in Rome, not to be born in some nice emperor's palace where he is pampered in luxury, luxury surrounds him, but he is born in the poorest place on earth. I have a map that I want to show you. This is a, a map that was compiled by a man by the name of, of someone You've got maybe that name back. Strabo. Strabo was his name. He, if you can go back a couple of slides. Is there a map on that string there for me? There you go. Bingo. This is a map that was compiled that, that kind of highlighted the, uh, the world of Jesus' day as they knew it. And so Strabo was a man who was born in contemporary of Jesus. And, and he traveled to Egypt and traveled to Italy and traveled east towards Asia and did lots of traveling, interviewed lots of sailors and others who did other traveling. And, and to the best of his knowledge, compiled this map to say this is the world that we know in the time of Jesus. And so if you were to look at the, that map and you were to go north from Israel, from Palestine, you would find the powers that be in north and west would be, would be uh, Rome that dominated the entire world. You go south into Egypt and, and Libya and, and the powers and the great history that was Egypt. And you go east towards India and places like that. And, and all the important places were somewhere else. All the important places were not where that blue circle is. And yet that blue circle is where Jesus arrived. Um, and really, Strabo would comment that, that really the only value to that land was that it was a land route that took you to someplace important. And so there really wasn't a reason to be there except for God's purposes for him being there. And those purposes were great. And so Jesus shows up in the pages of history. And, and as we have been exploring this, this month uh, and this whole theme of digging Christmas, we've asked the question, did Jesus really exist? And we have found that, yes, not just biblically, but historically he existed. And we asked last week the question, can I trust the story that I'm reading? And so we, we looked at various things that give us good confidence to know that the story that was told, the story that was started, is still the story that you and I are reading today. And yet those are great things. Those are good answers to have in your mind. But here's the question that maybe people who live 2,000 years later and live a couple of continents away, it's like, why does a guy who was born in that little blue circle, why does that story have anything to do with my life living in the middle of Missouri uh, 2,000 years later? 
How can I relate to that story? What does that story say to me? What does it do for me, a person so many years later and so far removed from that story? And that is exactly what I want us to think about here today by looking at these verses that the writer of Hebrews would say in describing the person of Jesus, both in his greatness and in his humility. He would say this in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 and following. It says, since then... We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. And so he begins with the greatness of who Jesus is, that Jesus is not only the Son of God, but that he has passed through the heavens. In other words, he has made sacrifice here. He has passed through the temple in in heaven. He has made sacrifice for sin for all of us. He has made redemption. He has made friendship with God possible once again. And so he begins with his greatness and his divinity and the great things he has done. But he doesn't leave us without a reminder that says, yes, he is great, but maybe the best part of him is that while he is great, he is also so small and he's relatable and he is able to be connected to. Hebrews chapter four, verse 15 says this, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. What a powerful statement that is. A statement that the God of heaven, the God of all things, has come so close to us that he can sympathize, he can understand, he can relate to what you're going to, going through, and that's good news. But just as significantly is that when you're struggling, you can look to a God and know that he relates, and you relate a little bit with him in his life. And so he finishes this with saying, you know, because he has become so small, because he has become so humble, he says this, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. And so there is help for us. And so when we dig into Christmas, there is head knowledge to be gained about a Jesus who really lived and and, uh, evidence to be collected to say, this is why I trust the story of the Bible. But a lot of people know those things, but don't really have a relationship with God because it's got to move from the head to the heart. It's got to go deeper than than that. It's got to go. And so we look at a Jesus that is great to us, both in his greatness and in his humility, And in doing so, I think just a few things that I just want to point out to you that I hope will bring um, some encouragement to you today. The first thing that I notice about Jesus is that because of his greatness, but yet his humility, he stands out to us. He stands out to us. Again, as you read the pages of scripture, there's a lot of historical figures that are there, but yet you stop and you read the story of Jesus and you just think, man, he's different. The things he did, the things he said, the story of his life, it's just different than other people that we read in the story of Scripture. Lee Strobel um, is an author, a Christian author, he used to be a former atheist and, and just kind of studied his way into being a Christian. Uh, you maybe know that story, but a few years ago, he had an interview with a man by the name of Charles Templeton. Charles Templeton is a man you probably don't know. Most of you probably don't know. Um, I think there's a picture maybe of him there. Um, But you'll know him because of his early associations back in the 50s when Billy Graham was just beginning his his ministry. Charles Templeton actually was a partner with him. And most people looked at the duo and said, if one of these two people are going to be great and successful, it's going to be Charles Templeton. He's a better preacher and and he's going to go and do great things. 
And yet, Billy Graham is the name we remember because Charles Templeton, not long after he began preaching, had a faith that began to fail. His faith began to be eroded by a lot of secular thinking and, and teaching, and he began to lose confidence in the Bible, began to doubt what it was really saying, that he could believe it, and so he kind of gave up on his faith and, and even wrote books later that talked about saying goodbye to God and those kinds of books that lived his life pretty much as an agnostic, if not an atheist. And so um, his life was very much different than the way it began. But Lee Strobel had an opportunity before he died a few years ago to interview Charles Templeton, who was in failing health, and his mind was not great, but he was still a great conversational partner, uh, Strobel would say. And in his book, A Case for Faith, Strobel recounts the ending of their conversation when he would say these words, this conversation. He asked Templeton this question, and so how do you assess this Jesus? It just seemed like a logical conversation Logical question, he, uh, Strobel would say, but he wasn't ready for the response that came back. Templeton's body language softened. It was as if he suddenly felt relaxed and comfortable in talking about an old and dear friend. His voice, which at times had displayed a sharp and inconsistent and insistent edge, now took on a melancholy and reflective tone. His guard seemed to come down a little bit, and he spoke in an unhurried pace almost nostalgically, and he carefully chose his words as he said this about Jesus. He was the greatest human being who has ever lived. He was a moral genius. His ethical sense was unique. He was the intrinsically wisest person that I've ever encountered in my life or in my readings. His commitment was total and led to his own death, much to the detriment of the world. What could one say about him except that this was a form of greatness? Strobel was taken back, and so he asked him the follow-up question, you sound like you really care about him. Well, yes, uh, Templeton said. He is the most important thing in my life, came his reply. And he began to stutter as he said, I know it may sound strange, but I have to say I adore him. Everything good I know. Every decent thing I know, every pure thing I know, I learned from Jesus. And yes, yes, and, th and that's tough. Just look at Jesus. He castigated people. He was angry. People don't think of him that way, but they don't read the Bible. He had a righteous anger. He cared for the oppressed and exploited. There's no question that he had the highest moral character, the least duplicity, the greatest compassion of any human being in history. There have been many other wonderful people, but Jesus is Jesus. And then he finally slowly said, he's the most important human being who has ever existed. And he finished it. and said, if I could put it in words, he finished with these words, I miss him. As I read that, I thought, man, what strange words for a man who has spent his life distant from Jesus, having formerly known him in his youth, to finish his life by saying, I miss that guy. I miss the character, I miss the humility, I miss his compassion, I miss this guy. You see, when you read the story of Jesus, you can't just walk past it. It just stands out in the pages of history. It's different. And so he not only stands out to us just as a figure in history, but as you read what the Bible says about him, and, and the Hebrews passage especially, I, I love the simple statement that he sympathizes with us. 
He sympathizes with us. He stands out because he is like us in so many ways. Now, that can be a good thing or that can be a negative thing. I read this week of a Santa Claus in England who was getting quite frustrated with the children that were coming to see him. And so finally, in his anger and frustration, he just stood up and ripped off his beard and began to uh, unleash a, a string of profanities at the children that were in line waiting to come see him. And so as you, sometimes you read something like that, you think, I can, I can relate to that. I can sympathize with angry Santa who's tired of the small children. Okay, I get that. I can sympathize with that. But when we sympathize with Jesus, and Jesus sympathizes with us, it's not, oh, he's such a wretched human being, I get that, I, I've been there, that's my Monday and Tuesday Wednesday, I, I feel that. It is a sympathy based on he stands out and he stands above, but he's also standing with us. So he's better, he lived it right, but I get it, I can see it, I can experience that as I read his story, and so... His ability to understand us is such a huge thing. And so when you think about the humanity of Jesus and his sympathy that he can give to us, I just sat down last night and began to think, what are some of the things in my life, at least, that I just think are meaningful ways in which his sympathy, his sympathizing helps my life, at least, and maybe your list would be different, but these are some of the things that stand out to me as I read his story the first is this, that he sympathizes us in dealing with maybe that feeling that the weight of the world is on your shoulders. You ever feel like that? You just, man, it's like all the pressure to perform, all the pressure to provide, or all the pressure to be, or all the pressures of life just sometimes feel like such a heavy weight. And that can be a lonely feeling, but yet there's Jesus, who if anybody ever felt the weight of the world on his shoulders, it was him. And so when I come to him in, in my prayers and I say, Jesus, I'm just feeling that pressure today, um, it's not hard to imagine him saying, I, I get you, I feel that too. I've been there, I've done that. I can give you help for that. Find mercy for my times of need. So maybe it's the weight of the world that maybe you just feel like right now there's just a lot of weight on your shoulders and I find it comforting that Jesus sympathizes. Maybe, though, it's the wickedness of the world. Maybe it's just the evil that you see around you and you think, man, is it ever going to stop? And the violence and, and the immorality and all the stuff, it just doesn't, seem, doesn't ever seem to stop. And, and we live in a world where everything is just broadcast right to you all the time. And the wickedness of the world can just sometimes feel so overwhelming and discouraging. But then I look to Jesus, that if anybody else ever understood the wickedness of the world, to be cursed at, uh, to be rejected, to be treated with violence, to be mistreated with violence, it would be Jesus. And so I'm not alone. You're not alone when you wrestle with the wickedness of the world that Jesus gets it. Or maybe it's the weakness of our wills. It's that struggle to, I know the right to do, but I don't always do it. I have a struggle with my will to, to do the right thing that I know I should do on a regular basis. But I'm thankful that there's a scene in Scripture and multiple times when Jesus is brought to a place of decision he has to make a decision. Am I going to do this God's way or am I going to do man's way? And, and he wrestles, he prays, he sweats drops of blood even as he wrestles with these decisions. But yet he, he does right. But yet he understands the struggle. And so I find there's a sense of, of help in knowing that he sympathizes with me and with you when there's a weakness of will. that says, I know up here, God, I know what I want to be. I know who I want to be, but I just don't always follow through so well. Maybe it's the worth of our lives, 
Maybe it's just that sense of purpose and worth and, and, and I know mental health has become such a big topic in our culture right now and it should be and it's a good thing, good conversation to have but it seems like weekly there's someone who seems like they've got their life all together and yet they're struggling so deeply with is life even worth living anymore? There's a sense of is, am I worth anything? Is life worth anything? Is there a point to all of this? And I think it's helpful that when we struggle with worth and purpose and, and just those core, this is why I'm here kind of questions, that Jesus wrestled with that, that Jesus lived from those kinds of things, that he lived out of a great and deep purpose and he can sympathize with us when we struggle or maybe it's just the weariness of our souls. Maybe it's just the weariness of soul. You just get tired, right? You're just worn down and maybe you've been doing the whole parenting thing for a long time or the grandparenting thing or, or you're just trying to, to keep a marriage together and it's hard or maybe you're trying to keep the finances together and, and do the right things and it just gets tiring. And I'm thankful that Jesus from many times in scripture, especially as you read the gospel of Luke, you find him frequently, hey, there's a crowd there, but I'm gonna withdraw. Let's go over here and let's talk to God. Let's go pray. Let's go recharge ourselves. And so he gets that weariness in your life. And, and the list could go on and probably be a helpful thing for you to sit down and say, where are the things that I struggle with? And begin to look for places in scripture where, where he speaks into your life. And so he sympathizes with us in ways in which, as the final verse of our text says, that it gives us strength that he strengthens us out of his sympathy. It's not just, oh, I feel bad for you, like we sometimes say to other people who are hurting, but it's a, I feel you, I see your pain, I understand what you're going through, but I can give you mercy and grace to help you with that. And so as a follower of Jesus, it is comforting to know in your head, that, yes, Jesus gets where I'm at. He gets my struggle. He gets my, my whatever. But the best part of it is he's there then, to give us strength, to give us mercy, to be able to say, okay, this is hard, this is a struggle, but let me day by day just infuse life and help and encouragement back into you as you step by step follow me and trust me. He strengthens us in good and helpful ways. And so that's what I want to leave you with today as we think about what are we digging into today? I want us to dig down deep and mentally and just be able to say, hey, I know that Jesus existed and I know the Bible is a trustworthy document. But I think the best evidence that you will ever find is just a life that is surrendered to Jesus in areas where we just are struggling and we feel weak. Maybe it's with our guilt and our shame. Maybe it's with our own sin that the grace and the mercy that we experience, that freedom of, of forgiveness and that's the best apologetic there ever is, is for you to live before a world and say, you know what, I once was, I used to feel so beat down because of my sin and my guilt, but now I am set free. And there's this new thing that Jesus has done. Oh, there was this time I was so discouraged, so depressed, and, and step by step Jesus has helped to, to, to lead me out of the pits. Or there was this time I was in such need, and yet Jesus, day by day, provided me the bread and the sustenance that I needed those are the best apologetics. It's the one that comes out of your life that says, hey, this is the Jesus that is helping me and growing me in my life. There's an old Christmas hymn that is uh, one of my favorites. It's O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And I love it because it's kind of dirgish. It's kind of like an old, old hymn, old chanty thing like you'd hear the, the, uh, the old priests used to sing in their old uh, sanctuaries. Um, but it's really a cry it's a cry from a hurting, 
people. I looked to show you that picture, a little Israel that was so forgotten by all the powers and everybody else who was just running roughshod and fighting over the land because it was just a road to somewhere else. And God's people were stuck there. And yet it's their cry. I said, God, would you hear us? Would you come and help us? And so I saw this video just of a young lady singing this song. It's in a beautiful place. And so I just wanted to show it to you. It's not, not very long, but I just love the, the power of this moment is it's just simply our cry to say, God, here I am. Whatever it is I'm struggling with, wherever my hurts may be, whatever guilt and shame, would you send Emmanuel to help and to minister to me? So let's give it a listen if you would, please. So at Christmas time, we celebrate the peace and the happiness and the satisfaction of knowing that God answers prayer. That in that little small town in Bethlehem, what seemed so unordinary, or very ordinary, excuse me, was very unordinary. It was extraordinary in that God was doing something. He was supplying for his people their heart's cry. Would you come to us? Would you help us? And in Jesus he has done that for us. And so that's my prayer for you. My prayer for you is that you would live a life that you don't look at, get to the end and realize, you know what, I was busy. I was full of so many things that I did, but I missed Jesus. What a terrible thing to get to the end of your life and have to pray and, and lament, I miss Jesus. But may we draw near to him now while there is still breath in our lungs and, and opportunities to know him and, and be comforted and helped by him. May that be our, our prayer today. Would you pray?